Hello, everyone, and welcome to the uh, Rethink Energy podcast for uh, our issue 134 of Rethink Energy. I'm here today with two analysts, Harry Morgan and Andrews Wontanar, and myself, Peter White. And we're going to talk today about our issue, but particularly we're going to look at some incredible news about China's plans on renewables, which will take it way past Uh, any targets it has or any forecast anyone's got for it. We're then going to look at how the electronic vehicle transition can reach 100%. Then we're going to have a a little in-depth look at Iraq and the difficult position that many countries find themselves in when they are oil dependent. No further ado, Harry, um, China's going to smash its renewables targets. Yeah, I mean, so a few months ago, President Xi Jinping came out with a uh, 100 gigawatt initiative for wind and solar in China's deserts. I mean, it, it split it into deserts, Gobi and desert areas. So pretty much just all the arid land you can think of in China with an, yeah, an initial 100 gigawatt that he said back then that was already under construction. But this is all part of sort of the large movement. I think there's been rumours that four to 500 gigawatts were sort of planned for that area with around half of which could come online by, by 2025. And I think once you look at sort of the time scale at which they're they're hoping to develop these projects, I mean, in, in the note that was issued this week that said there could be another sort of second phase coming in the next sort of few months, it's actually quite soon. So construction on each of these projects has to be started uh, next year and finished by 2023s. And at latest, from the second phase of projects, that's connection to the grid by 2024. So a huge amount of capacity that's going to be surging online in China and, yeah, really pushing it ahead of its renewables targets. I think currently it's 1200 gigawatts that it's looking for by 2030. Previously, other analysts have said sort of three that will be reached three years ahead of schedule. Our figures put us at about four years ahead of schedule. But if, if all of this desert based energy is, is actually realized, it could actually be up to five years ahead of schedule. So it's just another case of China transitioning far faster than people think. I think when they first said that 1200 gigawatt target for 2030, I think we thought, well, they'll do that plus all the stuff they already have, which brings it to 1,700 gigawatts of wind and solar power. I didn't actually look too closely at the graph in your article. How much does it come to now? Was it two gigawatts in total or more? Two gigawatts? No, sorry, two, thousand, two terawatts, I mean. Oh, uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, our current projections, if and this is with a sort of he- desert-heavy renewable scenario, um, and given that we think that probably all of these desert projects will be realised, is actually getting up towards 2,500 gigawatts by 20 uh, by 2030, so nearly double. Well, at that case, it would be yeah, double the target made um, made back then for 2030. So, yeah, it's it's just another yeah another case of sort of staggering growth within China's renewable industry. Um, but we still think that this will yeah it'll mainly be solar power in, in this area, but it will be quite a large chunk of hybrid projects. Yes. Um, China China's very keen on sort of really cutting down the red tape for these projects. Obviously, it's land where you have very few objections from. Uh, from the people of those areas. Obviously, in China, that's not necessarily an issue. Uh, and we've seen that with projects for, for decades, really. There's things like they're not going to let more than two uh, parties work together on a project to sort of um, reduce any sort of bureaucracy within it. And they're asking for projects to be built near existing transmission or, or near planned transmission lines, uh, potentially near existing coal and gas fire power plants so that you can sort of really have the energy hubs that are then providing 24 7 And what do they get for building it out? Do they get a guaranteed uh, contract with the government? It's just a power purchase agreement with the government's grid. Uh, I think that's what the uh, why it's sort of being run on a national level. Uh, obviously, China we're beyond the point of subsidies, largely for onshore wind and for solar. So it's not necessarily about receiving financial incentives, but it's it's more about receiving some guarantees that yeah, there will be um, your electricity will be purchased. 
it's, it's different in China. If you if you're part of anything that's official and permitted, and, and that can be anything, you need a permit for everything in China, then you can find money because you're part of the government's plan. And um, and so yeah, so so this is obviously going to be funded. I think the Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia. I think they're actually already are the two biggest provinces for onshore wind. But the other reason to, to expect that it'll exceed these targets is because of how well things are going for like uh, rooftop solar and offshore wind in um, in Guangdong, just opposite, not quite opposite Taiwan, I guess, if it's Guangdong. It's, it's going great guns in other parts of the country as well. Yeah, and, it, um, it almost seems like there's a comp- almost competition between between the individual provinces and the and the national targets. I mean, each province seems to want to have a larger larger share of renewables than than the next. And if you actually add up the the total of the renewables pledges from each of the each of the provinces, it is always greater than the national target. So, I think how, how comes um, how comes American commentators can't see this? They 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 get all upset about China continuing to have coal plants. They can't see the aggression with which it's pursuing renewables or acknowledge it. If their own country could do that, that you know, we, we're going to have the situation where America continues to lag behind on renewables, even with this current government, and uh, thinks it's catching up when it's actually being left further behind, and saying, well, why should we? Because China burns some coal. And when they're doing stuff of this magnitude, I mean, they're creating an environment where the coal won't be competitive. All of these renewables will undermine them. Of course, they'll use the renewables once they're built. And of course, they're going to beat their targets because that's what they do. Yeah, I mean, so, so I've, got, I've got a few theories on why, why the US continues to underestimate China in this regard. First, I think the US is, I mean, is, is obviously obsessed with public markets. Um, so your vet, uh, companies like Vest, Asimus, Gamisa that are publicly trading, I think as as America sees it, if it's not a Vestas turbine, if it's not a General Electric turbine, if it's not a Siemens-Gamesa turbine, if it's not a Nordex turbine, it doesn't re- it doesn't really count. So, firstly, that they're, they're not really con- uh, acknowledging how qu- quickly the Chinese wind turbine manufacturers are scaling. Uh, I also think that America really doesn't trust the data coming out from China. I mean, in any sector of the economy, um, but in this case, yeah, within renewable energy. I mean, the the project that was that we reported on this week um the news itself actually came through a wechat sort of avenue so it's not a, it's not where america likes to receive a data. it's not from like an academic journal it's not from a company's press releases so it's just a very different way of doing business and i think america very much sort of looks down upon it and doesn't necessarily see it as as legitimate i think andres will tell you that if you can um, get a piece of uh, get a website through a translator that most of the information on china is there to be viewed and it's it, it comes over as open and and fair and obvious. It doesn't come over as bias and prejudice. Yeah, the newspapers might, but these are statements from um, from uh, official government sources, and they, they're measurable. And if they didn't uh, stick to those numbers, then they uh, th- then we could uh, put some doubt on them. When you look at a country like Russia. Yeah, I think you, you see everything they say, they, they never do it, and um, it's all done for show. But I, I don't think China's really got a habit of doing it for show. I totally agree, although there is that incident at the end of last year where they claimed to commission 72 gigawatts of wind power, and they must have just grid-connected a load of stuff that was due to come online the next two years. I guess we, we kind of have to give the sceptical Americans that 
that little thing. But that, but it's all real, you know. It's, it's those projects. It certainly exist. Uh, and, and another related thing is when they had those controlled ordered power cuts in uh, September and October. It sounded like, oh, we, we don't have the coal. We're kind of panicking, so we have to do it. But then you, you soon got the impression that actually it was it was also because they were enforcing emissions targets, because when you bring on loads and loads of coal plants, it means you're bringing online all of the low quality old ones. So the efficient the, the emissions per unit of energy are far, far higher. So they quickly ran into those regulations about emissions per per unit of GDP or per unit of um, industrial added value or whatever it is. And they did. They did decide not to impose like uh, not to cut the knees off of a, a sixth of their industry. And they did they did loosen it up and they did secure a lot more coal as well. But it kind of shows that it's not just fake, that they're really walking the walk. And, and they're consistently an entire third of the global renewables um, additions and, and more than that of manufacturing. And if you look at their emissions as well as part of the world, it's probably up to about 30 percent by now. But they're also 30 percent of global manufacturing. They're also still a relatively developing economy. And, and you can just see that they are trying to uh, limit coal and they are doing it in a you know, we, we'd like them to do it faster than 2060, but they, they will, actually. Well, what I find really um, um, surprising about all this, if you if you take someone, um, if you take the deserts in America, the places that aren't populated in America that have that have no very low land costs, if any, are they doing this there? Uh, no, people, you know, uh, people talk about it all the time. Is the Middle East, where they have waterfall money from oil, uh, but they know that at some stage that's going to run out. Are they doing it there? No, they talk a good fight and they say they're going to, and then they cancel projects or, or they don't even mention they cancel them. They just fail to materialise. So, so I. But you know, China does what it says, and and it is to do with um, uh, all the obstacles we put in the way in the West. I mean, if some rare lizard that there's only three of in one of the deserts in America is going to be uh, jeopardised they won't build there. That's just a fact of life. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a single solar project in the US that's over one gigawatt. And in China, we're seeing like, it sounds like there's dozens of such complexes. Well, considering this is a story about China, we, should, we shouldn't really be talking about America. It's my hmm. The upshot of all this, Harry, is that the China leadership speaks, uh, the region's answer and the the result is they get more than they bargained for, and that's good news. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just a case of, yeah, it will be China pushing past its renewables targets. It will be China reaching peak emissions before 2030, and it will be China becoming, unless the US can do something dramatically different in the next few years, it will be China becoming by far the leading force in terms of renewable technology. So it just needs to be viewed as a sign that, that China got the capacity to, to lead the markets if if no one else is going to step up and do it. Yeah, I mean, what I find really interesting is that throughout the Trump administration, sorry, the first Trump administration, you know, renewables continue to grow and have momentum with the government was resisting, uh, resisting it. The, the, the Americans are the only people that could shoot themselves in the foot by voting Trump in again uh, and being unable to see the damage he caused their economy. But I mean, that's the likely outcome is we've got a, a president now who's who's meant to be gung ho behind renewables. But 
there are a lot of people in the halls of power that are preventing him from getting over the line with legislation and he could end up as an ineffective president uh, and that could be followed by a second term for Trump. Uh, that, at the end of that period, America's economy would be so shocked there would be China would be the global leader. Hasn't the Biden administration been quite successful in expanding subsidies for solar and wind and those huge spending bills? Were those spending bills not effective for renewables? Uh, no, I, I believe they are, but they're, but they're all less than what they wanted, all less than what they needed. And they've made compromises. And it turns out they have many doubters even in the Democrat Party, not, not just in the Republican Party. And they had to count out to them. In China, you can't imagine... They'll have a debate behind closed doors. You know, don't spend quite so much on it. Or, well, all right, okay, not for this region. And then they'll come out with one announcement from the top, and everyone will go, right, that's clear. We'll do that. <laughs> it's uh, you talk to anyone who's been over to China and 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 been introduced to any of the industries, and they're they're on a scale that they can't imagine, and they're they're done with an efficiency that is that just takes the breath away. Uh, as much as you may politically hate uh, that type of style of leadership, top-down leadership with with no um, with no room to no wriggle room, it gets things done. And uh, politically, it might be unacceptable, but it certainly gets things done. Let's move on. Yeah, so I gave a, uh, a seminar, not not a webinar. It's called a seminar because it's people were supposed to be there, but actually it ended up virtual because of uh, the pandemic. Uh, with Bath University's Institute for Sustainable Energy uh, this week. And um, we will be getting a video of that on the website in the coming weeks um, when their editors are finished. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll be putting that on our website as it will be on theirs. And it was really interesting, that type of audience, partly business and partly academic. So there were questions there. And one in particular question, which I, I thought was a really good question, is what happens if, if people just stop buying EVs? You know, everybody wants one, gets one, and, and we're only at 50% penetration. And what happens if after that, you know, somebody who bought an EV goes back and buys a, an internal combustion engine or ICE vehicle? And I just thought that question showed how people don't understand that change is directed from the middle. You know, when we look at um, uh, Mary Barra, um, who's my constant shining example, who um, six months um, into uh, 2020 was saying, oh, we'll we'll get to eventually to electric vehicles, maybe in 20 years. And then in February 2021 said we won't make anything other than EVs by 2035, which was, of course, only 14 years away. And, And that is because of the pressures that she is under to reflect the share value in General Motors, which is the company she runs, uh, and make it a similar valuation to Tesla. And if she didn't do it, someone would have fired her and um, and put in someone who would. So uh, decisions are made in the middle. Consumers start the process. Consumers flock to new technology. They like it. And the early adopters like it. But you can, uh, my argument was that you can, force people over the line and turn something 100%. Uh, I, I don't know. I've never met anybody. It'd be interesting if anyone knows anyone who, who bought an electric vehicle and then changed their mind and went back to an internal combustion engine. And that's because the costs of running it are so low. And once people get used to it, they go, oh, cool. Why did I ever buy petrol? So that was, that was um, so we did a piece 
just talking through all the logic and all the policy uh, start moves that a government can make to finish off the uh, transition. Yeah, I mean, because you wrote, Peter, earlier this week, you wrote a, a piece that highlighted that in the UK figures up to sort of 28% of all cars are, the sales of cars in the UK are electric. And I mean, if you look at the figures, it's around half now are either hybrid or electric. Obviously, we've got our own opinions on hybrid. But um, when do you think in terms of reaching... You see, that is really interesting. I mean, you take, that was just for November. And it's actually because November wasn't as big, wasn't a big month for selling cars, about half as many as, as, as some of the other months. And the electric component of that continued to motor on. Uh, and the battery electric in particular grew substantially and it's actually a, we've put a quite an intricate graph showing that it was the battery electric ones not the plug-in hybrids but you, you're right that, that mild hybrids are quite liked by a lot of people because if they're buying for social conscience reasons they're saying well you know it's still got the reliability of uh, being a petrol car so if i run out of charge uh, you know but they they most they only charge on the fly what they end up doing it effectively is they run the same distance on half the petrol and as a result of that they say i'm doing my bit for the um for the climate so the social conscience is still pushing people into mild hybrids but i suspect that once they've had a mild hybrid their next car will either be a full plug-in hybrid or, or a battery electric vehicle. Um, so you're right, there's an underlying consciousness of, uh, of climate impact going on in car buying right the way, not ju- just the 28% who bought plug-ins, but throughout the next 20 or 30% as well. I mean, we've seen obviously um, the US this week sort of confirm that it's going to try to be sort of selling 100% electric vehicles by 2035. I mean, the UK said 2030 in the past, and I think the um Places like Norway are looking for before that. When do you think we'll see the first markets actually selling purely electric vehicles and nothing else? Do you think it will be at that deadline or do you think that there's a scope for that consumer that consumer chain to see that 100% mark reached um, ahead of time? Change, change is, is one of those things where suddenly it becomes difficult to do what you've always been doing. And you're faced with, uh, we give this example all the time, as you close down petrol stations, um, that they get further and further apart. And more and more people have to drive, go to ridiculous lengths to fill their car up with petrol. And they, you know, tuck for a while and go, oh, what's the world coming to? And then they go, actually, why am I doing this? You know, my neighbour just plugs his in. Why can't I do that? And eventually it's, you break down the resistance because, because there's not an economic basis to make money unless you reduce the number of uh, petrol stations. They've already fallen dramatically in this country and, and in, uh, it's fallen a little in the States and they, they're on a downward spiral and they will consolidate. And as I always point out to people um, that work in the recharge business, petrol stations are bought on, uh, uh, on the cheapest land by a fast road, which has high traffic flows on the outskirts of a town. They're not anywhere useful. If you have to go and plug your car in there, you wouldn't choose to because you'll sit there for 20 minutes waiting for your car to charge and doing nothing, twiddling your thumbs. You'd much rather park it outside Tesco's and plug in there, go and do your shopping, come out, your car's charged, or go to the gym. Same result. But uh, unless you're going to increase the um, the value of these by building gyms and shops there, you're going to end up with... Um, 
all the oil companies are going to try to make you go out of town to charge a car. It's that that's just not going to happen. Um, but they they do it because they already own these locations for filling up with petrol and filling seriously filling up with petrol. People talk about it being five minutes. It's usually under two. Um, and uh, and the electric experience is ten times that. So I just I just find the um, that's going to change. Uh, the place is going to change. Uh, people are going to stop seeing petrol stations. They're kind of there'll be a oh all right kids for the next half an hour in the car long car journey see if you can find a petrol station and they won't see one and and that's going to be the future. And that's the bit that tips over the edge and makes everybody buy a car, buy an EV. Anyway, we give more examples of that in the article, a number of, uh, of other uh, policy moves and the way, for instance, we give a, a model for how taxation, uh, at the moment, fuel tax is a huge uh, chunk of revenue for most European governments, how, how that might um, be changed. A policy might be changed to keep the, the amount of tax from the car industry roughly the same, but still maintaining the incentive to move from ICE vehicles to electric vehicles. So I, I loved your piece on Iraq, um, Andres. I've got to say, I, I wouldn't want to write about Iraq. I'd be frightened of upsetting somebody in the immediate past who's had dealing with Iraq and getting it wrong or getting my perception of it wrong. Um, you seem to skirt through all the political minefields and show the, the picture of a country that's devastated, um, almost like through no fault of his own, and how it's still in so much trouble because it's so dependent upon oil. Yeah, like I say at the start of the article, everyone knows that um, the West had the intervention and then the insurgency, but it's it's easy to forget about the if you if you're my age it's easy to forget about the gulf war before that and the us sanctions and the war with iran in the 80s and then isis as well so you could say it's had four wars in four decades and it really hasn't developed uh, as a society since about the middle of the iran iraq war now, ironically it actually did develop during that war because it was getting so much financial aid from the gulf states and, and the worst it, it, by some metrics it actually improved but um yeah, and you look at you look at the Iran Iraq War, and it's actually quite a useful backdrop because it, it shows you how when you are just you know just a Middle Eastern state in the 1980s was able to get the fifth largest most powerful military in the entire world just because of oil money. That's not really possible so much anymore. And I think that make, I think that's a really critical point. You know mm-hmm. that uh, dictators, uh, strong leaders can hijack oil money and do with it what they will. Mm-hmm. Um, they typically um, put it in a an offshore bank account as well, or some of it, uh, so they can live in luxury for the, for the rest of their lives if ever they get deposed. The whole thing about oil is that it's almost like the industry promotes that. Oh, let me let me raid your country of natural resources. Don't worry, you'll get rich. And and there is it's so there's so few examples of the industry growing or the people getting rich or consumers uh, getting cheaper cheaper uh, energy and what they, what tends to happen is yeah and 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 it stimulates wars i mean we've seen there's another piece this week about the um, mozambique lng terminal and the friends of the earth are quite clearly saying is no there aren't rebels the rebels were created 
by the desire of this government to steal all the natural resources and put it in their bank account. That's that's what created the rebels. That's and and that's what's recruiting them. The fact that you clear several hundred thousand people off the land, then they've got no, nothing else to do, so they join the rebels. They the, the, this creates conflict. And um, it, you know, you mentioned the Iran Iraq war. Millions of people died in that war. That was a terrible thing. You know, it's just and in the name of oil, really. Well, that particular war, I think, was actually it had a lot of it had a lot, a lot to do with Islamism. I think right then, the Iranian regime, which perhaps now is a lot more reasonable, or you know, they've had to run a country for forty years. Back then, it had this. Uh, you could almost say sort of messianic religious agenda to depose the monarchies, depose the secular dictators across the Middle East. So I honestly think if <laughs> attacking them when they just formed their regime, if it had worked, it would have been quite a coup. But, uh, you know, obviously he, he invaded Iran, got bogged down quite quickly. And, and then it was indeed a disaster that went on for another eight years or so. And but you see the immense power that you're able to sustain this like World War One trench warfare for like uh, almost the best part of a decade uh, just from oil money. And and that is not going to happen anymore. I think right now in 2021, the violence in Iraq since 2003 is at record lows. It's at a 30th of what it was when it was at, at its worst. There's still violence. There's still suppressed protests and assassinated uh, political activists. But it, it's so much less than it was. And with 2021's oil and gas prices, it's actually seeing a lot of investment. So it's kind of you could say it's the last hurrah for Iraq, uh, Iraqi oil and gas, because how how long do you think they'll have to benefit from the oil and gas? Because if they and how, how what are they going to set up with the money while they still have it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the key question all over the planet. If you're dependent upon oil revenues, you've got maybe. Yeah, certainly you've got till 2027 and I think mostly we won't see much of a change there'll be a up and down oil price and mm. people have their head in the sand pretending it's going to go away but as more and more electric vehicles are bought all over the world less and less oil requirement um, slowly that just the price starts to fall uh, OPEC members start to bicker among themselves about their share um, OPEC breaks down the, the price falls some more and if it you get to some point where you you happen to be one of the countries who's not invested in your infrastructure and and you can't uh, not just I mean your oil infrastructure and you don't have an efficient way of bringing that oil to markets you end up with no money Mm. and uh, and you've had money all this time Um, uh, leaders leadership gets overthrown probably does it goes back into an ISIS type situation. How much are they going to spend? They need to, to spend every spare penny now on renewable energy so that it can become renewable hubs uh, so that they have a, a, an income in the future. But they don't see it. Because basically the, the one good thing is at least it's it's so dangerous because of the whole Islamism aspect that all of the Gulf states and even Russia, maybe China and the West will not want to see Iraq collapse. Uh, and they will support it, I would imagine. But the question is, how do you support it? Do you try to turn it into a hydrogen exporter and just have it have an industry that way? Because I, I don't see it developing a like full fledged economy and society because it's still it's still corrupt and authoritarian. It's just that now there's no dictator who has any kind of vision. They, they, there's distributed power between all these different groups and militias. So how, how do you develop the society? I feel like you just. You just have to, it's going to be a charity case one way or the other. But can it be a charity case that produces hydrogen at least along with the, the other Gulf states? If it isn't, if it doesn't, the world will just look the other way. 
and all those people will die. I mean, that's the that's the truth of it. That people, that countries like America only come and, and uh, throw a protective arm around you when they have something to gain from it. So shortly after the Iraq War with with America, um, twenty billion dollars worth of oil just evaporated, you know, and it went into the pockets of Americans, and everyone knows that. Uh, they see it as a, a, a as a place to rape and pillage outside the uh, American legal system, and a lot of that went on with the support of their military. Uh, once it's not like that, be, they, these people have to do it themselves. The, the leadership needs to, mm. to, to, you know, a leader needs to emerge, and they need to invest in. But but then again, grid infrastructure is very easy to blow up. The same as oil pipelines. Uh, you, you, if you, you first thing you need is peace. And they mostly have that now, comparatively speaking. But uh, even in August, there were three power lines, I think, for a hydroelectric dam that got blown up by ISIS. Every country, um, whether it's Nigeria, whether it's Mexico, who have an abundance of oil, whether it's Brazil, and who rely on it within their economy, Mm. they need to stand back and think about the future of of their people and they need to convince the voting public if there is a voting public to put them in power and if there's not then you need a strong warlord to put them in power and get on with transitioning because it, once once these no one's going to go to a desert that is not providing an economic value to to organize and to bring charity um except its neighbors and um, iraq is the most extreme case of an oil dependent country because you know someone like venezuela they might have a terrible economic time but they're not going to turn into like the next caliphate or something so it has that element and it's in a desert as well so it's kind of harder terrain to survive and you need more yeah i mean i, I was staggered andres with reading your article to see that there was was it 90 percent of government revenue comes from the oil sector yes 90 percent and something like 40 percent of gdp and i think that i mean that in this era of volatility that we're in seeing sort of the prices mm. going up in town for oil as they are obviously that puts them so exposed to um, just economic collapse. I think what you've got to realise is that over the next 10 years, there's going to be these spikes and um, the sort of supply shocks that we're going to see in the the oil markets in terms of, I mean, if you look at today, the Cambo oil field in Scotland has been pretty much put on ice. Um, we're going to see projects of increasing size that are suddenly cancelled and the price of oil go up. Then suddenly rogue government decisions to bring them back online, which will bring the price back down. And obviously, in the long term, the price of the trend very much is downwards. If Iraq fails to transition its dependence to, from oil on towards clean energy, then then it is absolutely screwed. I think the only real hope you can see is that Iraq is actually, geographically speaking, quite well situated as an exporter into Europe. And I think if Saudi Arabia wants to develop an infrastructure to transport their power from or their power or their hydrogen from their desert into into Europe, then going through Iraq is potentially one of their best avenues in, in terms of Iraq's own infrastructure. That's very much how it could be back on the back of that. Yeah. And I, there's one thing we really have to remember to finally mention while we're talking about it, which is that what I go over is there's a load of um, new investment announcements in 2021 and there's plenty of gas and oil fields and, and and things like that and gas plants but there's also four gigawatts of solar plants that are now being planned and like Peter always always says it's harder to embezzle from a solar plant than it is from oil 